All right, we're back for another edition of the Fried Egg uh, Podcast. We've got a second one in the last seven days here. Um, This time we're going to change speeds and go into one of my favorite realms of golf, golf course architecture. And with us as a guest, we've got Rob Collins, who's a golf course architect based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he and his partner, Ted King, are responsible for the nine-hole masterpiece Sweetens Cove. Um, Sweetens Cove has a cult-like following amongst architecture fans, and we're really happy to have Rob on. Great to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, I got the chance to play Sweetens Cove in uh, May of this year. I was down in Knoxville for a wedding, and... Uh, saw that Chattanooga was only about two hours away and knew I could squeeze in nine holes if I got on the road about 545 and got it done. And it was, it was a experience that kind of changes the way you think about golf. I think, you, you know, you look at a lot of different people and their opinion on it and the, you know, the resounding uh, opinion seems to be that it, it, it changes the way that you think about golf. And, you know, one of the worst things about Sweetens Cove is, is generally leaving. So congrats on a great job there. Um, it's been fun to kind of watch all these new people's opinion, and I'm sure you get the same uh, satisfaction. Oh, uh, we really do. It's been a thrill. I was thinking today uh, as we started texting back and forth a little bit about about the podcast, you know, when we were building Sweetens Co., um, I could tell, you know, early on that it was really good. It was really, really good. And I was really, really excited about it. But I can't I, – I I, and I knew that it would speak on a kind of a deep level to a lot of people, to a certain set uh, of people. I, I thought there was a, a market out there um, for it and that it would – like I said, it would really appeal strongly to a certain subset of the, the golf population. Um, so that wasn't really a surprise, but the amount of publicity that we've gotten out of it and um, the degree to which we've you know, received a, a lot of you know, kind remarks and great publicity and everything else has exceeded my expectations. So we're really, really pleased with everything, and it's it's a thrill to see it continue to grow and continue to get more attention. And um, it means the world to me to, to see people react to it that way. I, when we were out there doing it, those long, difficult days where nobody's watching and you're working your butt off, you know, you would kind of think, you know, one day somebody's going to get this. They're going to appreciate it. And, just kind of get through the day on that thought, and now that people are reacting to it in the way that they are, it makes all those long, tough days worth it. So it, it really is a thrill. Yeah, I I think uh, seeing you know Rob's recently posted a lot of uh, before and after photos, and um, Jason Way of geekongolf.com did a a great piece with Rob on kind of how he got into architecture and, you know, a very detailed look at the Sweden's Cove story that I highly recommend to anybody that hasn't checked it out. Um, But, you know, 
as getting into, you know, golf course architecture, and I know this was kind of your first solo gig at it. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into it. I think every architecture fan that's an average Joe like myself has had the dream at one point or still has the dream of building a golf course. And I'd, I'd just love to hear about kind of the industry, how you get started um, and how you got started and, you know, have built your career to this point. Uh, that I think that'd be great for the readers to, or and the listeners to hear. Well, um, I think I was like a lot of kids uh, real early on, you know, maybe kind of vaguely remember it's fifth or sixth grade, maybe seventh grade. Definitely I remember in seventh grade drawing golf holes in the sides of notebooks and uh, I think that's I think that's pretty common for, for people who, who get into golf at an early age. So I was kind of like everyone else in that sense and um, I went to went to college at Swanee um, and then got out and I graduated in 97 and really what I really wanted to do was go be a golf course architect but I really had absolutely no idea how to go about doing that I mean it's, I knew that there were golf course architects out there obviously and that they had somehow got to that position in life, but I didn't understand how you could go from being a graduate of a liberal arts college and actually turn that into a into a profession so bizarre and strange as, as golf course architecture. Um, and so basically I kind of chickened out for four or five years, kind of put it on hold, put that dream on hold, and and I went and worked in Atlanta, um, and I enjoyed my time down there. It was kind of a good post-college time, and I had a few different jobs, one of which was basically the same as the job that the guy in office space had. I mean, it was absolutely miserable, and, and I think it was important to go through that because I realized that I really, really did not want to spend the rest of my life doing something I didn't love, didn't care about. And, you know, during that time, I researched um, ways to get into the business and came around to the opinion that the best way for me to do it would be to go back to graduate school and um, get a landscape architecture degree. I thought that would basically provide the foundation, educational foundation that I would need uh, to, you know, have some of the most basic skills that I could use to transition that into a actual job, and so I went back to Mississippi State, which that was one of the programs that um, actually welcomed me with open arms and my interest in golf course architecture. I made it extremely clear to the department head and my major professor that I did not give a damn about landscape architecture. I was there for one reason and one reason only, and that was to be a golf course architect, and they, they were fully supportive of that. I mean, I was not dismissive or, or rude in any way towards landscape architects or the profession of landscape architecture, but they understood that, um, you know, I was going to use those skills, which are very valuable skills, and I'm really, really glad I went back to school to do it, um, but that I was going to use those skills for an extremely specific subset of, if you want to call golf course architecture, a subset of landscape architecture. I mean, it's kind of a 
was fortunate to finish up and graduate in 2005 when they were still building golf courses and um, domestically at a, a very fast rate. So it was actually possible for someone like me to get out of school and get a get a position. And uh, I, I worked uh, while I was in school. I had an internship with a with a really super guy uh, from Raleigh, a guy named Rick Robbins, uh, a very accomplished architect. He's former president of the ASGPA, uh, worked for Nicholas for a long time in Asia, um, just had a ton of experience, a wealth of knowledge uh, about the profession. He's the first guy who ever believed in me. And, uh, I always really have a fond place in my heart for Rick and, and his wife, Ginger, and Brian Lucier, who was in the office there, and, uh, and another guy named Jeff Westmoreland. I, I learned a lot from all of them. And, um, and then I transitioned that into a design coordinator role with Gary Player um, Design, where I was basically on site day to day on a on a couple of different projects with them, and that was a wonderful experience because I that that helped me understand uh, the link between a finished golf course and the just the conceptual planning phase, which I'd gotten in school and. And it's kind of the first stage of it, but the, the really important stuff is what happens in the field. That's where I fell in love with construction. And, and then uh, after the, sec- the second and last project I did with, with player in the field was a, a really neat golf course up in Cranbrook, British Columbia, called Wildstone, and um, worked with their uh, senior designer on that project, a guy named Jeff Lawrence. Um, learned a ton from Jeff. And, and Frank and again the other the other designer there, but Jeff and I were, were players, um, the main people on, on that project, and um, that was a really a really great experience. But it was one that uh, was cut short by the recession, and um, it did eventually get finished and, and is now open. But I had to move home and, and came back to Chattanooga, and I was determined not to give up on my dream and um, I formed King Collins Golf Course Design with my good friend and now business partner Tad King um, and so I think that Tad and I make a, a great team where our, our skills you know our, our skill sets complement one another really well and um, I, I wanted to do design build type of work um, I always wanted to be on the phone. That was always my vision. I, <laughs> I actually remember when I interviewed with Flair, I said something really stupid in hindsight. Um, Scott Farrell, the president of Gary Flair Design, asked me what my long-term plans were, and I told him that I wanted to be out on my own eventually, <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> Thinking back on it, I mean, I can't believe I said that. I mean, usually you would keep a lid on stuff like that. Like, you would go into that interview and be like, I want to work for Gary Player for the rest of my life, which, I mean, I was extremely honored to even be sitting in that room um, at their office in Palm Beach Garden. That was a really, really big deal for me um, right out of graduate school. And I was, you know, Scott's a great guy. I mean, I, I love all those guys. But it's funny thinking back on that, that I was so determined to make a name for myself that I, I 
blurted that out in an interview. Um, and that was, in a way, the recession was the thing that, well, not in a way, it did force my hand. It forced me to go out on my own, which is where I always wanted to be. So I had to live through a couple of years of hell of not being involved in golf course architecture at all while the economy sort of stabilized. And, um, and then we got lucky and had this little nine-hole thing fall on our laps. You know, the rest is history. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting how the universe kind of connects itself. But you know, at the same time, I think as an you know an employer's got to like when people want to you know do great things and want to build a brand of their own to a certain extent. You know, when you're hiring a you know entry level early employee, you want to hear motivation rather than somebody that just you know wants to be around the office and you know slowly working their way up, you know. So I, I think it could go either way, and luckily for you, it went the right way. Yeah, yeah I am lucky that, I mean, maybe Scott thought that was funny and, and kind of laughed it off, or maybe he saw that as being someone who was motivated to do a great job and could, could benefit their, their organization. I, don't, I never actually talked to Scott about that. I've, I've never even really, I've never mentioned that to anybody. I've talked to my wife about it. I mean, I'm what the hell was I thinking saying that? I mean, <laughs> but I, you know, I, that's that's just where my mind was. I always wanted to be on my own. I I really, really, really wanted to have a, my own brand and my own voice. And that was always really important. And we were so lucky to get the Sequatchie Valley job. I mean, it was. Although I will say, uh, Gary. Speaking of Gary Player, he has a, a, a great quote, which is, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So we all, we did make our own luck, and we put ourselves in a position to get lucky. But in many, many ways, we were lucky, too. Um, not only did we get the project, but one thing we were extremely lucky with was our, our client um, uh, was, a, was a concrete manufacturer out of uh, South Pittsburgh and Chattanooga area. And um, they had this old golf course that they wanted to, to redo. And, and Reese Thomas, my, my, my client, um, was uh, a great guy. And uh, his, he just totally trusted us. And to, be, to have someone right out of the bat, right out of the gate, trust you in the way that Reese trusted me and Pat is rare. I mean, we could have had somebody, this is our first client, who, shot down all of our wild ideas, because Sweden's Cove is not normal. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's far from it. And, it's very bold. Uh, it's extremely bold. And, you know, we were, walk, we were walking a very fine line. Um, and it was a scary line to walk um, during construction to, to go through all that. And But, it, you know, Reese was a, was a rock, and he he really believed that what we were doing was special, that it was right. And that's that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's the total toss-up. I mean, you hear stories about other people whose first clients or don't trust them necessarily and, you know, put too many restrictions on them. But Reese let us do our thing, and and that that was huge. And that's why Sweet & Co. 
that's a big part of the reason why Sweet Scope turned out so well. Um, so, you know, to the point about Sweetens being bold, um, it is it is certainly that. And I had some I had some sleepless nights during construction, wondering, you know, do we push it too far? And um, and that was something that I've just kind of always wanted to guard against. I mean, I knew I knew I wanted to do something bold. I wanted to do I wanted to do something unique. And I and I knew that there was a line there, but where exactly that line is is open to interpretation. And if I had not been on site every single day the balloon that was Sweet & Co., uh, the helium balloon could have become untethered from the from the ground from its boring and drifted off into space and kind of devolved into something that was just not very good, that was not yeah. grounded. And, and that's, I think that's what I take the most pride in, really, about Sweet & Co., is that it is a really, really unique, it really, really, really bold vision, but it does not come unglued from the foundational principles of what a great golf course does and what it should be. Mm-hmm. And that that was really hard to do because the physical manifestation of those concepts, those architectural ideas, the sweet stove are presented in a very unique and different light than most other golf courses. So it's hard to create something that looks and feels so different that has an extremely bold flavor while keeping it grounded in a set of, you know, five or six or seven key principles. That that was the grind every single day on site, you know, just making sure that all this really – all crazy stuff we were doing wasn't flying into the ether and turning into a giant pile of crap. It was it wasn't they grounded. That that was hard, and I'm really really proud of that because we kept it grounded. I mean, it, Sweden's Cove is grounded in these tried and true principles, but it's expressed in a way that I think is really unique. And that was my goal going in, and that was hard to achieve, but I think we did it. Yeah, I think that where, you know, architecture can go wrong, and, and I think one of the things I loved about Sweden's Cove so much was the, you know, the general idea of, of width off the tee that kept everybody in the in the ball game, but then taking, you know, already established, you know, green complexes and principles, like, you know, the first green for everybody that, you know, hasn't played there is a, a really cool it's got a it's a it's a short par five so it's reachable in two but you have a really interesting green complex that's on the left side got a redan kind of kicker in and then you and then on the right side of the green is is a punch bowl so you get these interesting blends that are very it's very boldly contoured but the architecture goes back to the golden age principles and i think you know and i'd be interested to hear your take is you know, my general, you know, philosophy of where golf course architecture went wrong during this dark age that we were in for, you know, the 40s through 
the you know early 60s is is that people tried to reinvent the wheel as opposed to you know taking making small tweaks to the tried and true principles so i'd love to hear how you draw on you know those golden age architects and the and the great architects of even today for inspiration when you go into your and do your design yeah that's that's an interesting uh area to dig into and i mean i think i think the first i think the first question was where did it go wrong and um how do you avoid that i mean i, I you know the golden age architect um you know, kind of all were focused on strategic principles. Um, they were, you know, they were interested in creating a, a canvas that had variety, strategy, um, work, um, you know, interesting, bold features that were unique in their own right, but that were at the same time kind of grounded in, in some some of the kind of foundational principles that, that you learn from the best courses of Great Britain and Ireland. And, um, and the Golden Age architects, by and large, weren't afraid to try new things, to, to, to do bold, interesting work, to do quirky things. And I think that one of the things as golf shifted kind of post-war was that golf became very homogenized in its creation and its presentation. Architects quit doing interesting, bold things. They, they, and I think part of that is because it was, you know, closely tied to housing and, and other real estate-based interests that did not have golf as the central interest, but golf was instead uh, an amenity. And if you view golf as an amenity, as a sideshow, um, it's easier to create, to basically just, uh, for the lack of a better word, template holes that are, <laughs> you know, just, just completely bland. Not like a template hole in the sense of rainer, but just uh, you're just repeating the same ideas over and over. Like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to put a put a bunker on the inside of this dog leg here and then man at the green there's going to be a bunker on the left and a bunker on the right okay we'll move on to the next one and, and i think that that just became the just a very common way to, to do it and there was an obsession as well with fairness which is just so stupid it's not part of golf people mm-hmm. became obsessed with fairness and having every single thing visible out in front of them um, you know, they just golf just drifted away from from the lessons of the old course and and the, you know the the things that the the great architects um, of the golf age were were into and and so it it just really uh, there was just a lot of really really bad golf courses built and uh, and I think it was hard to to break out of that then. You know, along came Pete Dye, and all of a sudden there's this wild guy who's doing all this amazing, bold, interesting work that's based on strategic principles, and he certainly had a lot of flair and was doing all kinds of things that were, you know, in the spirit, uh, 
Amherst of the last 20, 25 years uh, are direct descendants with his his vision and his greatness. And, um, you know, that there's been some incredible golf courses built in the last, you know, since the early 90s. And, and I think that people have been getting, obviously, I mean, I'm not saying anything people don't realize, but they have been getting back to those kind of core principles and ideas and thoughts. And um, there's more artistry, more work, more interesting things going on in architecture, and it's, and it's, it's a relief. Mm-hmm. So do you see kind of um, the interest in golf course architecture from the general golfer um, increasing – since you got back into the field, um, or has it kind of remained the same? Or, you, you know, what what have you seen from kind of golf course architecture becoming more mainstream? I think it's definitely becoming more mainstream. You know, the patron saying of golf course architecture is, is Mike Kaiser, and, um, you know, he's built these immensely successful uh, developments, and, um, I, what he's done, Vanden in particular, has had a huge ripple effect throughout the, the golf world. And uh, I think that, you know, he alone has helped create an awareness of, of what, what good architecture is. Even if people don't, you know, have an interest in there, maybe some sort of passing interest in it, at least they – they may not understand why they like what they like, or they, they may you know, they may not be able to carry a discussion on about it, but they can they're at least aware of it, and that's a change. Um, and so I think that you know I think that there is there is a higher degree of interest in architecture, and especially um, you know due to the wonders of the the internet. Um, you know, I've spoken with with this about Adam Lawrence, the the great. Uh, British uh, golf writer on a number of occasions. Um, he, you know, Adam said to me one time, he's like, Rob, I really think that somebody wants, you know, one day is going to write a write a book on on golf club atlas and, and the impact that this uh, brand site, you know, has had on the world. And um, you know, he and Ben Cowan Noir have had a just a, a massive impact on. Uh, on golf, golf course architecture, and the the spread of interest in um, in the subject of architecture. I mean, Golf Club Atlas was started in the sometime in the '90s, and it's just continued to grow. And it, it is now a really, I think, a pretty major force in in the golf world. It's just large, and, and that's because you know the thoughtful discussions. And, Incredible course reviews, that in-depth reviews that Rand put up, and it's it made a lot of people aware, uh, including myself, of, of what what's good, what's not good, why is it good. Um, it, it's a really it's an amazing resource, and anyone can, can access it. So, I think there's a few few things that have gone on in the last 20 years um, that, that have really helped shine a light on architecture. Yeah, I mean, I. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I would I would read, you know, for hours on golf course architecture, just about 
you know, if I was going to go visit a, a, a different city, you know, where to play and why to play there. I think that's the the general, you know, is basically, you know, getting to a point where you're trusting people because of, you know, you know, I trust this person's opinion. And I think we've seen that with Yelp and golf courses are just, you know, kind of a little bit slower. It's tough because, you know, in order to have, formulate an opinion, there needs to be some sort of, you know, that's a good opinion of, of the architecture. There has to be some sort of understanding of architecture, which we're getting there. I, I think more and more uh, people read and understand it and, you know, go to golf club Atlas, the better, you know, recommendations people are going to get when they go on a golf trip to a random city. Um, Absolutely. I think, well, I think I think the, the fried egg, I mean, you know, you, you have a relatively new platform, but it's growing, and, you know, your focus on architecture is important, and I think that if you're exposing more people to, you know, some of the mm-hmm. basic ideas of what, what architecture is all about, and, and you're showing people, too, the link between the game itself and architecture and how you know, I think I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think you would agree that um, there's a, a, a sense that if you understand architecture, you're actually going to enjoy the game more. It's going to be a, a richer experience. It's going to be more fun. And I think that's, you know, part of what, what you've done, and, and it's, it's growing. I mean, it's, that's great. It's great for me. Yeah, I think in general, I think, you know, golf course architecture and understanding a golf course is you're going to enjoy the game more. You're going to play more golf at better golf courses. It, it doesn't mean that the golf courses are more expensive, but it's a matter of finding, you know, these kind of hidden gems that were designed by great architects that, you know, they might not be in perfect condition like your $200 around um <laughs> you know, 1985 design Tom Fazio course, but they are going to be playable, fun, present unique options. Um, yeah. The biggest thing I, I see is, you know, the more you understand architecture, the the more it helps your golf game. Um, I've, yeah. I've seen my game get better just from understanding, you know, holes. Um, a good example would be I was playing the mid-am, and my last hole of my first round, I was I was kind of hanging on to a round, and I was five over going into the you know the ninth hole at Stonewall's old course, which is like a 220 yard Redan hole over water. And I looked at it, and this, this wind is just it's blowing, and I'm like I don't have 220 in the air, so you know I hit I hit my four iron and I got it to just catch that front right kicker and it rolled down to seven feet from the hole because I knew wow. you know, the principles of the hole. And yeah. I think that's, that's where, you know, people can understand strategy and where to miss their shots and their scores are only going to get better and better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you're playing a golf course where, you know, strategy was a part of the design and, and construction process, understanding strategic principles and, and everything, um, you know, it's gonna it, you're gonna fare better and you're gonna you're gonna do a better job. I mean, I I see that out at Sweden Cove. There's a guy who comes out all the time, and he's a he's a great guy. Um, he is what I would call a kind of a, a lifelong um, you know public golfer. 
um, in Chattanooga, which means he hasn't really ever played anything interesting for the most part, which that's not a knock on him. That's just reality. Um, but he, when he comes out to Sweden Cove, it's his favorite golf course. And, you know, he talks to me. And he, I mean, he doesn't read golf book outlets. He doesn't. He doesn't <laughs> buy books about architecture, but he sits there and talks to me about how he has to think his way around the course and the places he needs to be and the places he can't be and how he likes Sweden Cove because he has more options and how he can hit different shots. He is saying things that, to me, that, you know, you would hear from somebody who's a contributor on Golf Club Atlas. He doesn't have any background in architecture, and, and he's just a guy who's observant and thoughtful, and he gets it and understands it, and um, it's self-taught, purely self-taught from being able to come out and play there. And so, and it's, and he's gotten, he's a lot better player now than he was before he started coming out. He's thinking his way around more. And, and that's, I think that's pretty cool. And I think architecture can have that impact on people. I mean, that, that example right there is proof of it. So let me ask you a question. As an architect, how does, you know, say you go play, um, you know, a new golf course, how do you like, how do you look at a golf course different than, say, an average golf fan or a, you know, even a, you know, a semi-knowledgeable um, architecture fan? How, do, how does, like, somebody that knows the deep intricacies look at it differently? Is it, you know? Well, I think, you know, one thing that may be different in the way I look at it than, than say, your, your casual architecture fan or your, your golf club atlas poster is that, um, you know, I, I think I have a, a really good understanding of um, the construction process and how things happen. And um, I can look at things and sort of tell right off the bat, you know, what was going, <laughs> what was going on there, or what was going on here and there. And you can kind of see, you know, we're, where where mistakes were made, if there in fact were mistakes, if it's a negative comment, or or maybe you you know if it's a positive thing, you can see where they paid maybe paid some extra attention and, and you know made a good tie into a slope and, and created some interest, um, you know in an area. Uh, a perfect example is um, my my sister-in-law is a member of a course in Wellesley, Massachusetts called the Hoyt. It's an old Styles and Van Fleet, and they were, you know, really, really good um, uh, Golden Age architects. And um, and I, I went and, and walked around the golf course one time with her, and you know, hole after hole, it's a, it's a nine-hole golf course that it could use a great, she could do an incredible restoration there. Um, but these kind of golden age principles are there on the ground. They didn't move much dirt at all. But you can tell by the way the golf course was routed that somebody who knew what they were doing did it. And this is before I knew that it was the style of Van Cleek. Like, the, the thing, the hole that I always remember up there is the eighth hole is this um, short par three. It's maybe 140, 150 yards or something like that. And it plays over this ridge line that kind of slants from high on the left to, to low on the right, so it kind of cuts across 
your visibility of the hole um, in, in a diagonal way. And, and a large portion of the green is actually blind. In other parts of the green, you just kind of catch a little glimpse of the flagstick. And it's, that's just a landform that's been there for thousands of years. And they just routed the, the – they did a good job routing the golf course. And they stuck this green behind it. It's just immensely entertaining par three. And I, when I saw that, I was like, okay – Somebody really clever did this. I mean, this is an awesome hole. And, um, you know, little things like that might be lost on your, your casual observer. And other things where, you know, people, you know, go to that $200 around resort course and think it's just amazing. And you sit there and you look at some of the construction and how lazy it was. Um, it just, just kind of disgusts you and you wonder. You know, yeah. you wonder how they get off charging that much money. And mm-hmm. if, if you think about, well, it's all about marketing and glossy brochures a lot of times, and you know, a reputation well, that you not, may not be well earned. And so you kind of see under the, you know, a different level of it, I think. So with you being a kind of more of a boutique uh, architecture firm, you know, how is is the the toughest thing getting in the conversation with these bigger name brands, um, like say a, you know, a Gary player design or a, a Nicholas design, or even nowadays, like a, a Doke, a Renaissance golf design is, is really the, the first, the big, biggest hurdle, just getting your name in, in the mix. Yeah, it, it is. It definitely is. And, you know, when Tad and I started King Collins in 2010, and uh, before before we had any project, and the the thing that we just kept telling each other was, if we can just get one project in the ground during the recession, just one, we can prove to everyone what we're capable of, and we can take that and build on that. We'll we'll actually end up being way ahead of a lot of other people because. Number one, it's going to be extremely hard to build golf during the recession. There's not going to be much built. And we believe in ourselves. We believe that what, what we come out with will be good enough that we can, can build a career on that. We can point to that as a example, an in-the-ground, real-life example of our methodology and our and our thoughts on architecture and construction. So we How do know you very much was that, and getting that was was huge. And now we can point to that and say, "Look, we we went head to head with you know one of the biggest names in golf, and hey, we can do it as well as anybody, and we've got proof." Mm-hmm. So that's a lot. How would you say that you guys, as a brand, differentiate yourselves from you know? It, I, I know architecture. I think of it kind of as an art because everybody's interpretation of a land site is going to be different. But you know, when it comes down to you know, what am I getting with uh, King Collins that you know is going to be different and unique? Um, what kind of your guys' philosophies that are uh, you know your core differentiators from everybody else? Well, there aren't many uh, companies out there that do, um, you know, the design-build method. I mean, we found it. We looked at, you know, what what are the best golf courses in the world that have been built in the last 25 years? Every single one of them has been built using a a design-build model. And 
And so we founded our company on that on that basis. We think that it's far and away the best way to do it. You can keep costs down while, you know, providing uh, hugely interesting, uh, you know, features and, and artistically constructed uh, features for the golf board. And as far as, um, you know, how, how we may be different, you know, I don't think that, at least at this point in time, that anybody can match our um, our, our cost and in, in, in what we're what, what we're going to deliver. Um, you know, Tad and I are going to be on site um, majority of the, the process all the way through, and that's the level of attention to detail and getting personalized uh, features built into the course that that just is, is a very rare thing. And um, and I also think that Sweet Cove shows that um, you know we're willing to um, and capable of doing some some things that have a have a really fresh take um, on, on architecture. And then you know thirdly, I think um, Sweet Cove uh, shows that we are deeply passionate about what we do and I don't think that there's well I know that there's there's nobody else in the world who would have done the things that I've done to get that golf course off the ground I have been through hell and back for a nine hole golf course in a floodplain in Tennessee okay Mm -hmm. nobody is going to match that I don't think anybody can match that level of passion in in that drive um, I, you just there's nobody out there that, that can 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 say that they 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 would have done what I what I did for that course, and that's why Sweet and Co is as good as it is. It's because we infused it with all of these little details. We never gave up. It's got this soul and this spirit to it, this energy that is a result of all of the energy that was put into it, and. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't know, you know, the whole story of Sweet and Co. I mean, I think Jason's interview does a good job with it, but the long and short of it is, is that the, you know, the golf course was left for dead in 2013. I took it over, made it, took a massive personal risk to take it over on a long-term lease, um, reclaimed it from what was quickly becoming a patch of weed, got it open, um, it's been a labor of love and a and a, and a passion project from from day one, and um, and it was like that, you know, all the way through construction. I mean, we bent over backwards for that for this place, and I just I just if you're asking what what would we do differently than anyone else, nobody. There is nobody that is going to bring the level of, of passion and attention to detail and and the desire to infuse the golf course with unique characteristics um, in, in the way that we do. And, and, and furthermore, they can't do it for the price that we can do it for. We can, we can, nobody in the world can build golf as inexpensively to a, as high of a degree of quality as we can. It's, we proved that in Sweet Scope, and I'll take that to my grave. That's a fact. That's, uh, that's a good sales pitch. is cheap and really, really good. Yeah, I mean, 
this is going to sound cocky as hell, but it's the truth. Whoever hires us for a great piece of land is going to hit the damn jackpot. I'm so ready to bust out of this cage. Um, whoever gets me next is going to get this fucking wild demon who is going to make them a hell of a lot of money. I am just so determined right now to build an unbelievable golf course. I know I've got it in me. I've got this unbelievably intense, burning desire to do it. And if somebody gives us a great piece of land, they're going to get something absolutely incredible. I mean, we turned a dead flat, floodplain, sack of shit golf course on 72 acres into arguably, you know, the best golf course best nine-hole golf course in the United States. I think the best golf course in Tennessee. Um, I think it's better than the honors course. Uh, Rand Morissette thinks it's better than the honors course. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a pretty amazing accomplishment, really. Um, yeah. and again, I, I realize that sounds horribly obnoxious for me to be tooting my own horn like that, but it's a, it's a fact. I mean, if you can prove it, if you can do it, it's not, not bragging. It's just being factual. You know, my my yeah. buddies, you know, joke around with me. I talk about Sweden's Cove so much that they say I'm like the president of the fan club. So I I know how, it, it's a it's a terrific course, and anybody that spent uh you know a day golfing with me probably heard at least five things about Sweden's Cove. So um, hey, I you know I wanted to get to some Twitter questions. We've got a lot of them and some really good ones that I think are going to have some. Some lengthy responses. If, uh, so thanks for everybody that sent them in here. And um, up first, we've got Simon Haynes, who's an excellent follow. Um, Rob and I were actually talking about how thoughtful um, he is. And he asked the question, are we in slash entering a new golden age of golf course architecture? And if so, what's the driving change? Uh, I will echo your comment about Ainsley. I think he's one of the most interesting guys on Twitter, obviously a really sharp, fun guy. I mean, that was, anyone who listens to this podcast, I would definitely follow him. He's, he's a lot of fun, a lot of great content out of his uh, Twitter handle. Um, that's, that's an awesome question. Um, you know, right, obviously um, Mike Kaiser, Tom Doak, and Cor Crenshaw, are the, the triumvirate that are, are largely responsible for ushering in a renaissance, for the lack of a better word. Uh, a little nod to, to Tom's business there. But, um, you know, like I said earlier in the discussion, uh, Mike, Mike Heiser is the patron saint of modern plastic architecture, and uh, he's on record as saying he's going to build, continue to build golf. Uh, for as long as he lives, and I, I suspect that, um, you know, barring any unforeseen circumstances, his, his son will, will, will carry that torch. So um, there's some people that, that deserve tremendous amount of respect for the, the current renaissance, and I think Simon may be alluding to kind of a, at least my take on it is almost a, a sub-renaissance to what, what's going on, a, a, a second, you know, period uh, of exciting work. And to that, I would say I think that there is, uh, and I think the 
that it is related to, my opinion is that it is related to the recession. And the recession sucked, um, but the recession also gave me a chance. And it also gave a lot of other talented people a chance. And it also is forcing a lot of the bluff and uh, unnecessary golf, golf courses to be flushed down the toilet where they belong. And it is also forcing clients in the future, uh, current clients, clients who might be people in the future building golf, to look really hard at what's important and what's necessary and to do things um, more efficiently. Um, you know, the days of, of the really massive, overblown, bloated budgets that, that contributed to this, you know, really boring set of homogenous golf courses, um, I think those days are, are thankfully behind us. Of course, there will still be bad golf courses built in the future, but they'll be fewer and far between. I think that, you know, the focus on doing things efficiently and doing things well can forge a, a new renaissance, for the lack of a better word, uh, going forward. And I, I think that I think that that's, that's happening. And I think that there's there's people like us out there who are who are taking part in it, who are who can do things efficiently to a very high degree of quality, and that's just going to be more good golf and a good prize. But it's mm-hmm. good for the game. Yeah, I think it, you see a lot less. I want to build a golf course is just as a general is I want to build a great golf course, which has helped a ton and kind of changed the the thought. You know, I think quality over quantity is what the recession kind of ushered in um, because less people are trying to build golf courses and therefore, you know, the smaller pool of architects is the better pool. Totally. That, that, that's it. That, that is that's exactly it. Um, so this one's from uh, Trevor Dormer, who's a fellow architect. Um, well, a very close friend of mine, really great guy, one of my best friends. He, he wants to know what's the most interesting natural feature that you've seen that you'd like to incorporate on your next course. Well, when I saw that question, Trevor, um, it reminded me of uh, an ill-fated project uh, that he and I were both going to be involved with called the Montaigne Club, Um, and that was a really cool uh, project that never came off in Bernie, Bruce, Columbia, which uh, that would have been the big one if it had happened for us, but it didn't. Um, Our clients decided to plant community gardens and stuff like that, which in the Canadian Rockies is like planting grizzly bear food instead of building a great golf course, but mm-hmm. whatever. Um, the, on that golf course, there were these really cool washes, like these old, um, you know, areas where water had drained for thousands and thousands of years, and it created these really neat contours, and um, and they were all completely playable. And we, <laughs> on the second hole there, there were these dips in the ground. It was kind of like if you've ever played Pasta Tiempo, like some of the really great contours that you see on that golf course that are 
those, those natural swales that McKenzie uh, incorporated into some of the holes there. And we were actually going to build a green through one of the natural swales. Um, and it would have been really an incredible green. I mean, it, it was probably, the bottom of the swale was probably six and a half, seven feet below natural grade. Um, but we were going to just build the green right into it and um, have a, you know, plateau on the back, plateau on the front, and that tenable area down there at the bottom. And I wish that had happened. I think that really incorporating neat natural drainage washes that would be would be really fun. I'd, I'd love to do something like that. Yeah, I, I'll include on our on the on the website on the podcast page the link to your plan for the Montane Club. It, it, it's really cool. I took a look at it. I spent way too much time reading it. Um, but for all, you know, kind of architecture geeks, it's it's a fun thing to kind of look through what could have been. Um, yep. So up next we got Forest M. Um, do you try and avoid building first holes that face east uh, or finishing holes that face west? That's kind of a, you know, a general old principle. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, yeah, sure. I, I think that um, I think that ideally, you definitely, you know, you you'd want to be careful with that and, and want to avoid that situation. But um, you know, if the land dictates certain things, I mean, sometimes you know, you're all, almost always going to have to make concessions uh, of one one form or another uh, in order to make the routing work. And you know, if you've got a great routing. Uh, but that's your one concession. I mean, I would make it. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to build a a less good hole just because of the sunrise or where the sun sets. I mean, I, you wouldn't want to use that as an absolute. In other words, you know what I'm saying? It's, you could, you would want to try to avoid it. But if you can, and you've got a great golf hole and a great routing, you're not going to destroy that. Build a less good golf hole just because of the, where the sun's rising or setting. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that. But you take it into consideration, but you're not going. It's not going to be a black or white issue. I'm trying to say. Um, this one's from goes to Hogan. Can new golf courses be built to speed up play, or is that 100 percent on the on the golfer? That's. A, I love that question. Um, I think golf courses can absolutely be built to improve. Um, to play. In fact, I just did a master plan for Signal Mountain Golf and Country Club, which is the course I grew up playing as a kid, and there are huge log jam issues on the back nine, and I think that our plan um, addresses those. And if that golf course gets built um, in the way that, that we designed it, which I hope it will, um, I think that rounds will go there from being, you know, four, kind of four and a half plus hour slogs to, you know, ones where you can get around in two and a half hours, like fly around the course um, because of, of how we did it, how we opened it up. Um, I addressed a lot of the flow issues, the connectivity between holes. So absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, that has to be considered. And I would encourage people to look at that signal mountain plan and and I, I talk about the flow of the golf course in there. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think width, too. You know, as Mackenzie wrote, 
tirelessly about, you know, golfers shouldn't be looking for the golf ball. Yep. It's um, yep. So if uh, if you had your pick of grasses and turf conditions for an ideal course, what would they be? And this is from Lincoln Duff. Uh, you gotta go. You gotta go with the classic, uh, firm and fast, uh, fescue. Um, I can go back to the Mustang Club. We were actually gonna do a. We were gonna do fescue fairways there. Uh, mm-hmm. And we would have had, we would have done uh, bent green, um, which which under proper management can be extremely firm and fast. Um, the best greens I've ever played in my life uh, were at Sand Hill, um, not just past summer, but the summer before that. I mean, the greens were so firm, so good, it was ridiculous. I mean, that they were unbelievable. Um, and, and, you know, with, with super fast, tight, uh, surrounds and then fairway, but the, the, the best you can deliver you, bone, bone down real tight, man, oh, you can't, that's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Firm we fast. try to get that, we try to get that as we go. I mean, 419 Bermuda, you can mow it low, <laughs> you can go real low with it. And, um, we get it. We get it firm and fast there. I mean, it, that's a lot of fun too. I mean, it's it's a good it's a good uh, you know representation of it. Mm-hmm. And our superintendent gets those greens fast. And not that speed is all that matters, but there's you know they're they're firm and they they roll out and they they play well. So I mean, you can do it on warm season grass too, but it's, you just got to have the right people in place to deliver it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bet. It's, I, I think you guys did it. A, I mean, my experience at Sweden's Cove, of course, was in perfect shape. So, and I hear it, it's only gotten better. So, it has. I mean, Brent's unbelievable. We're lucky to have him. So, we're going to go into a little bit of a rapid fire, and uh, your buddy Riley has got the first question here. <laughs> um, have you ever had poutine? Absolutely. You can't live a year and a half in Canada and not get the national dish, eh? <laughs> but, uh, you know, poutine's the bomb. Absolutely, you gain about a hundred pounds in a two-hour sitting, but you know, it's worth it. Okay. <laughs> um, so, who's the best architect that most people have never heard of? And this can be golden age or uh, modern. I don't know, the one that pops out to me that nobody's really ever heard of is A.B. McCann. Um, you know, he did some really great stuff. I mean, he loved wide corridors, strategy. Um, A.B. McCann did the, a lot of the strategy at Cal Club, and, and McKenzie did a couple of the greens and the bunkering, but, but you know, the lion's share of the strategy um, and the width and everything at Cal Club, which happens to be one of my absolute favorite places on the planet, is um, just A.B. McCann. I mean, how many people have heard of that guy? He was, he was I haven't. Top top. I'm going yeah. to Google him after this. Yeah. He was badass. Yeah. Um, so what is the one public course and one private course 
that are kind of like next on your list of places to check out that you haven't checked out that you're really excited about seeing? Oh, man. Um, well, um, I've kind of got an open invitation at Prairie Dunes, um, yeah. which, which I'm super excited about. Um, so that that is way, way up the list. Uh, I really want to see Old Town. I'm extremely intrigued by what Fort Crenshaw did there. I know they did an absolutely amazing job with that. So I, I can't wait to see Old Town. I know I'm kind of cheating and giving you more than one, but um, mm-hmm. definitely excited about Prairie uh, Dune. What about the uh, public? Public? Uh, I'll tell you one off the off the bat, it goes back to something early in the conversation about uh, seeing places off the beaten path that um, beat the pants off of a lot of the other fancy stuff. There's this place my friend Reese Milliken found called uh, Eagle Springs Resort. In Wisconsin? Yes. Oh, the pictures look insane. Oh, yeah. It's it's like the Army did an LSD experiment and gave the designer of the masses and told him to go out design the golf course. I mean, it's crazy, but it looks absolutely amazing. I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet, and it's been on my short list. And, you know, one of my buddies went out. He, I mean, it, they have like – and for those that I haven't, you should Google – Eagle Springs Volcano Green, and it, it's one look, of the most... Look at that. Crazy. Seriously, that's insane. Look it's awesome. insane. Um, yeah, that's, I'd love it's on, to play. It's on my list, and I'm kind of ashamed I haven't seen it. It's in my backyard. So. Oh, uh, well, maybe I'll come up to Chicago in the spring, and we'll go play it. Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll play a few places um, if you do that. Um, all right, so... How about Mount Rushmore, so four architects, living or dead? Who are who is on your Mount Rushmore? Well, you got to have Mackenzie. Uh, if, if they're a duo, they go as one. Oh, oh with a duo, you got to go with one? No, no, they go in as one. So I'll go, go in as one, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you got to go with Mackenzie. Um, I mean, I think you'd have to also go with old Tom. Um, yeah. That would be kind of silly not to put him there. Um, living, um, I mean, you've got to give a nod to, um, you know, Cork Renshaw. Um, I mean, they're absolutely at the top of the game, and they deserve to be. Um, they're they're uh, absolutely on fire. They turn out one great golf course after another. Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw both are, are both incredible architects, and they have phenomenally talented people working for them. They've just got an awesome system down, um, and and great guys on top of that. So got to got to go with that. Uh, and then, um, you know, I would say uh, 
maybe Colt. Yeah, he's got a lot of really good courses across the. Yeah, it's, that, that's such a tough question. I mean, you're really splitting hairs. Um, but I mean, I, I think you've got to this. Of course, I think you could also make a really strong argument for Pete Dye as well because, um, you know, I would almost replace, I'd almost put Pete Dye on there um, is the fourth, really, because he really brought modern architecture out of the doldrum. And that's mm-hmm. an incredible service to the world of golf. And it took a hell of a lot of <laughs> boldness and brilliance and, and everything else to do what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was, you know, Mackenzie, old Tom. It's a good, it's good That's a pretty good, that's a pretty solid list. And then, of course, it's kind of cool that if you put Pete Dial there, that you got Cork Renshaw on there, and I, you know, I was talking to Bill Gore a couple of months ago about his working, him working with me. I mean, that's the direct link. So mm-hmm. I think that's a kind of an inter, well intertwined list. Well, you and you see the absolute five, the modern masters, indisputed champions right now, Cork Renshaw, and Pete Dye, who helped get him there, and then Pete oh, Dye yeah. drew from Old Tom and McKenzie yeah. and. Uh, yeah, I think that's the list. Old Tom was the original guy that everybody drew from. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, make, makes sense. Um, yeah. And then uh, let's say top, your your five favorite, it doesn't mean your top, but your favorite five golf courses that you've played. Um, old course. Uh... North Berwick, uh, Pinehurst number two, uh, Sandhill, Sandhill definitely, and I think Sandhill is the best course in the U.S. Uh, I think you probably have a good national golf link. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good, good. Pretty good. Pretty good. And then, uh, pretty good. Last question. If it, if you could redo one thing, one thing you did at Sweetens Cove, what would it be and how often do you think about that? That is another great question. And um, it's something we talk about every now and again. Um, the one thing I would change about Sweet and Co is rather than having individual tee boxes, I would have flowed everything from built basically just little flat spots in the fairway. It had little flat spots all over the place um, mm-hmm. to have a bunch of different angles. And we, we as much as we could in the confines of the routing, that is that we, you know, we tried to build the tees perpendicular to the line of play as much as possible to get those different angles. Like the fourth tee box is a perfect example of that. The space allowed us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting, getting variety in the tee boxes was important. But we could have gotten even more if I had 
just had kind of a free-flowing tea box, kind of like what we designed at the Mud Tank Club, where you just put a peg in the ground wherever you find a flat spot. And, um, you know, that would have, I think that would have, I would have liked that. And, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll, you know, maybe one day we'll change that. But um, that's not, not in the foreseeable future, but that that's something that, that I would like to see. It, it doesn't, I don't walk around and go, God, I really screwed that up. I, that was a huge mistake or anything, but it's mm-hmm. something I would, I would, I would, be happy to be changed. Oh, the yeah. other thing, I, you know, actually, I will say one quick thing that I absolutely want to change, and I, and I can change it in the short term without a huge amount of work, is on the Redan hole, the, the ninth hole in Sweden's Cove, there's a little pocket of a bunker behind the green, and my intention when we built that golf hole was for there to be an equal percentage chance of being able to play it up the right side, like with a five iron, for instance, and have it loop hard, turn left, and lay dead at the hole far left side. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just as equally as good of a chance of that shot happening as um, flying it dead at the hole with, say, a pitching wedge or a nine iron. And right now it's a little bit out of balance in that, too many balls collect in that bunker behind the green. I would fill in this one little pocket of the bunker. It's about 20 feet wide um, and turn that into a fairway ramp that would help direct more balls down to that left side. I just, I missed that a little bit. I mean, that's just one of those details that just, it kind of slipped past me. I mean, I, I thought that what we had in the ground was going to turn balls harder than it did. And it, it turns them, but the, it, the margin of error is more finite than I intended. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can do it. I, I, I want it to be. I want it to be an easier shot than it is. Yeah, I imagine. I at least I would be. I'd be a big second. I don't think I could make it as an architect. I'd just be. I'd be afraid to pull the trigger on a hole. <laughs> I'd be like, eh, I don't think that this is going to work. You know, <laughs> I'd be in the. I'd be in the the drawing phase for years. <laughs> Yeah, well, you never know, man. That might be the that might be the trick. But uh, hey, I I really appreciate the time, Rob. Uh, Want to get you out of here and and end this. I think we're right a, a little over an hour. So, but it, you know, we'll definitely have to have you on again. I uh, I hope people like this uh, look into architecture, a little deep dive. Um, if so, let us know. We'll do more. Uh, architect uh, podcast, an architecture-based podcast. But, Rob, really appreciate the time, and um, thanks for coming on. It was awesome to be on, Andy. Thank you so much for your support this week ago and for the platform today. I had a blast talking about it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. We'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. See ya.